We live in uncertain times. Looking at the political world can be maddening and frightening if we hope for a better America. Looking at the social world can be shocking and horrifying, especially as we consider children growing up in a culture that is so anti-God. Looking at the American church can be confusing and alarming as we see so many churches embracing things like social justice and female pastors. So how do we live in a world gone mad while keeping a right focus and a right heart? How do we keep ourselves from being swept away in the current of ungodliness? How do we prevent ourselves from being persuaded by the culture or succumbing to fear or anger or confusion and even complacency? So this morning, as we all gather here this morning, I want to provide an answer to those questions, obviously from God's word. And in presenting you with the answer, I will also lay out our purpose for the women's ministry. So why are we all here? Why do we do women's ministry? Why do we encourage you guys to participate? We're going to talk about that really from the perspective of God's word here this morning. So what is our goal for women's ministry at GCC. So as we begin, I'm going to share an illustration of a missionary family who lived during very difficult times, a time of total political unrest when evil appeared to dominate the globe. Though our world may appear to be out of control politically, socially, and religiously now, this is not the first time, is it? No, if we look back at any time throughout history, we know that Satan is always active and alive and wicked people are always against God's word and God's people. So with all of that being said, here's the testimony. During World War II, missionaries Herb and Ruth Klingen and their young sons spent three years in a Japanese prison camp in the Philippines. In his diary, Herb recorded that their captors murdered, tortured, and starved to death many of their fellow prisoners. The camp commandant, Konishi, was hated and feared by everyone. Herb wrote this, quote, Konishi found an inventive way to abuse us even more. He increased the food ration, but gave us pale, which is unhusked rice. Eating the rice with its razor-sharp outer shell would cause intestinal bleeding that would kill us in hours. We had no tools to remove the husk, and doing the job manually by pounding the grain or rolling it with a heavy stick consumed more calories than the rice would supply. It was a death sentence for all of the prisoners, unquote. Before death could claim them, however, General Douglas MacArthur and his forces liberated them from captivity. That very day, Kanishi was preparing to slaughter the remaining prisoners. So listen to this. Years later, Herb and Ruth learned that Konishi had been found working as a groundskeeper at a Manila golf course. He was put on trial for his war crimes and hanged. But... Before his execution, he professed conversion to Christianity, saying that he had been deeply affected by the testimony of the Christian missionaries he had persecuted. Few things would be more difficult than living in a Japanese prison camp during World War II. If you've ever done any reading about people that have lived through that, you remember Louis Zamperini, if you're familiar with that story, just atrocities, wickedness, persecution, abuse, murder, all kinds of evil. Yet in the midst of all of the atrocities that missionary family faced, God used it for his own purposes and for the good of their family and for the good of that Japanese commander. Clearly, circumstances do not and should not determine how we live. That wonderful story illustrates that we can live in horrifically difficult circumstances without being controlled by them. 
As the Klingons lived in that prison camp, they had the opportunity to reflect the character of Christ to those around them, and God used their Christ-like testimony to redeem his own, even a murderous Japanese prison camp commander. So as we gather here this morning and consider the purpose and value of participating in various aspects of the women's ministry, I want to specifically share with you a testimony from the Apostle Paul. Why was it that he never succumbed to all the difficulties that he faced? You remember the things that Paul went through in his missionary journeys. He how did he continue in faithful ministry until his death, despite tremendous persecution, both physically and spiritually? So you have your outline, and the reason why I especially wanted you to have an outline is because I know probably you did not bring your Bible here this morning, but I wanted you to have the passage of Scripture in front of you, so it's on that piece of paper. And I know that probably many of you could probably actually quote this with me as I read it this morning, because this is a fairly familiar passage and one that is actually near and dear probably to many of our hearts. So if you would read with me from Philippians 3, 12 through 14, Paul says this, not that I have already obtained it or have become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one Thing. I do. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to give you just a very, very, very brief context here, just so you know a little bit of what's going on. So in chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul is presenting his spiritual biography. In verses 1 through 11, of this chapter, he describes his past, outlining what he could claim as his superior qualifications. We'll look at that a little more specifically in a minute. Yet he quickly dismisses all those qualifications as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. In verses 12 through 16, he outlines his present. So we have past, now we have present. Those are our verses this morning that we're going to look at, his present. And then if you look at 17 through 21, he reminds the Philippians of his future. He is, along with the other believers, a citizen of heaven, expectantly awaiting the presence of Christ and a total transformation from the body of sin and death to glorification in the presence of God. So, like I already said, today we're going to focus on those verses from the present. And actually, we're not even going to do all the way through verse 16 because we just don't have time. And I even feel like even with just these few little verses, there's just so much that we could talk about. So many wonderful truths. I was actually, okay, this is a side note, but I was actually thinking, hmm, for LBI, maybe at some point, I think a great assignment would be to take one verse and just like, study it to the nth degree, get every little nugget out of it. And of course, we know that that would be impossible because depending on our maturity and our knowledge and all that at the time, it just seems like every time you come back to a passage, you learn something else from it. Do you guys find the same thing? That's why we can keep going back and going back and going back because the Lord keeps teaching us from his word. So as we look at this, um, I was thinking really about the women's ministry and really how this passage, I think it describes uh, how Sandy and Rachel and I feel about the women's ministry and our interaction with you guys. It describes what we in our own hearts and lives need to be prioritizing and what we are endeavoring to help you accomplish in your life. This is, this is our heart's desire to help you pursue that goal, to get that prize. But what does that even mean? 
What does that truly mean? Do we know what that really means? And so that's what I'm here to tell you today. If this is what is directing my life and this is what I want to help you accomplish in your life, we need to understand what it means. So to fully grasp the significance of what Paul is describing in this text, we need to understand his analogy. So as you already know, probably if you've done any reading in Paul's epistles, what do we often see? He uses athletics to describe different areas of the Christian walk, and that is exactly what he's doing here in our passage today. He often uses terms like run, race, crown, prize. So today he is talking about running the Christian race. A commentator said this, in this section, we meet Paul, the athlete, with his spiritual vigor pressing toward the finish line in the Christian race. Is that not all of us as well? Pressing on to that finish line. This is what we are striving for. And we do it kind of ebbing and flowing, right? Through the difficulties of life, through struggling with sin, we grow weary, we have trials and struggles that come against us. And so we're constantly striving, but that's our hope. We're looking to the finish line. So remember that Paul admonishes believers to follow his example. What does he say? Follow me as I what? Follow Christ. That's for us. We follow Paul's example. In the same way that Paul pressed toward the finish line in the Christian race, Christian race, we too need to do the same. This passion, goodness, I'm having trouble pronouncing. This passage should reflect the beat of our hearts in the same way that Paul wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So A on your outline, if you are going to take notes, is A, recognize our sinfulness. So Paul says this, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. So Paul, right out the gate here, acknowledges that he has not obtained. That means taken possession of. He has not yet taken possession of that which he was pursuing. Well, what is Paul pursuing? The prize. And he says, I haven't yet taken possession of that prize. So then we have to say, well, what was the prize? What is he trying to take possession of? And what does our verse tell us? Becoming perfect. Paul says, I have not yet become perfect. I have not yet taken possession of a perfect character. So number one on your outline, Paul acknowledged he had not obtained a perfect character. And if you remember, this is not the first time that Paul has said something like this, because remember in Romans 7.15, he says, For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. So Paul is quick to acknowledge that he is sinful. And of all the people in the Bible that we could look at and want to emulate, Paul would probably be at the top of our list. And yet he is saying, I am not perfect. I still do not have that perfect character. So Paul recognized and admitted that he wrestled against sin. And this was an important statement because there was some very wrong teaching actually going on in the Philippian church. And we're not going to look at that, but I'm just going to mention it to you because what they were saying is that you could actually obtain perfection well here on earth. And if you have been involved in, um, I believe it's the Methodist and maybe the Nazarene, uh, if that has been your background, they do actually promote this idea that you can still be perfect. But Paul is saying, there's no chance of that. I have not obtained it. So earlier in our chapter, Paul explains that if anyone could put confidence in past experience or accomplishments, he could. And then he laid out all the things that the Jews would have considered important, and he could like check them off. So this is earlier in our chapter in Philippians 3, 5, and 6. And he said this, if anyone else 
has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day, a nation of, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. He had all the right performance. He had all the right descriptions. He had all the right credentials. He had everything. And yet he is saying, but I am not perfect and I do not rely on those things. So even with all those commendations, Paul says, I have not yet attained a perfect character. Even though according to the law, he did all the right things and would have been considered blameless, he still acknowledged, I have not already become perfect. So why am I belaboring this? Let's stop and consider for a moment what is ultimately being referred to when Paul is referencing a perfect character. This is really, really, really important that you guys understand this. This is what he is trying to attain. But what is the significance, this perfect character? Okay, so this is what he's after, a perfect character. So you remember from Romans 12, 29. Remember 28 that comes before it. That's the one we all know, right? That God uh, is working good for us and for his purpose. Okay, we know that. But verse 29 is very important. So it says this, for those whom he, God, foreknew, God also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So, right, did you, are, you, are you connecting the dots here? So when Paul is saying, my character is not perfect, I am striving for this, he is saying that I was redeemed so that I would reflect the character of Christ. And I have not yet fully done it. And so I am striving to be Christ-like because that is God's purpose when he saves us that we would be conformed to the beautiful, wonderful, perfect, holy image of his son. What has God predestined believers to become? Conformed to the image of Christ, who is the only one, the only man who ever obtained a perfect character. It was Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man. When Paul says he has not yet obtained a perfect character, he is saying that he has not yet obtained the perfect character of Jesus Christ. He has not yet been fully conformed to the image of Jesus. He has not yet attained perfect Christ-likeness. We're going to use that word again and again, Christ-likeness. He has not attained that. Like Paul, we too need to acknowledge that we have not yet obtained perfect Christ-likeness. This is really the starting point for the next couple of verses because if we don't view ourselves in the proper light of our sinfulness, we won't see the need to press on for the goal because as we see our own failings, our own deficiencies, our own sin, we realize we have not hit the mark. And so we strive to be like Christ. We strive to reflect a Christ-likeness, Christ's character. Unfortunately, we have a tendency to minimize our sinfulness. Any of you good at that like I am? Instead of comparing ourselves to the perfect character of Christ, we compare ourselves to each other or to the world to measure our holiness. And what do we find out? A lot of times we're like, this eh, I'm not really so bad especially when we compare ourselves to the world. I don't go to the bar. I'm good. When we compare ourselves to each other, I read my Bible more than she does. And besides that, I've shown up to all the Bible studies and she hasn't done that. I'm doing pretty good. That was not Paul. One of my commentators that I was reading, he said this, many Christians are self-satisfied because they compare their running with that of other Christians. Usually those who are not making much progress had Paul compared himself with others, he would have been tempted to be proud and perhaps to let up a bit. Eh, not strive quite so much today. 
After all, there were not too many believers in Paul's day who had experienced all that Paul had, but Paul did not compare himself with others. He compared himself with Jesus Christ. And that has to be what we are doing all the time, always. What does Jesus Christ look like? Do you know? His word tells us. And that is why we are constantly saying, be in the word, read the word, know the word, meditate on the word, memorize the word, because that is how you know the character of Jesus Christ. And that is why we do the Bible studies, because we want you knowing the word and being affected by it so that you will be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So number two, Denying sinfulness prevents us from pursuing Christ-likeness. To misdiagnose our spiritual condition sabotages our pursuit of Christ and his character. It demonstrates the attitude referred to in Romans 3. So let me read that to you. It says this, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. When we think too highly of ourselves, you know what happens? We think less of others. When we don't have an accurate view of our own sin, the sin of others becomes more prominent and we lack the grace to deal with it humbly. We criticize the failings of others. We harshly judge their motives. We are easily offended and we neglect to forgive. As we consider how we interact with one another here at GCC and particularly as women growing together, we must properly evaluate our own hearts because it is only then when we see our wicked, sinful tendencies that we realize we have so much further to go. And it humbles us to realize we need to be more Christ-like. And as we become more Christ-like, guess what happens? We love one another more and more. Because of Paul's accurate assessment of himself, he says this. So remember, he says, I have not already obtained this perfect character. And so moving on in our passage, he says, but, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Okay, this is so important. And I... Okay, I didn't, I think before I had started saying this, I didn't grasp all the significance. So maybe you're way ahead of me, but I love to study the word. Do you guys just love to study the word and just find these nuggets? You're like, oh, wow, I didn't know it like that. It just makes so much, it helps me understand it so much better. Well, this is kind of one of those, those moments. So I'm going to try and explain it to you. Hopefully it won't be confusing. So be here. We need to run after Christ-likeness. So he says, I need to press on. Well, what does press on mean? It means to run swiftly in order to catch some person or thing. It figuratively refers to one who, who in a race runs swiftly to reach the goal. So Paul says, I'm pressing on. That's not just a casual walk in the park. He is striving to win the race, running swiftly, he says. So what was the goal Paul was running toward? He says to lay hold of what Christ had already laid hold of. Okay, those are a bunch of words, and they're a little bit confusing the way it's written, so let's try and understand it. So notice that the phrase, lay hold, is in the verse two times. Paul was pressing on to lay hold of something that Christ had already laid hold of. So Paul is striving for the future to lay hold, but it has already happened through Christ. It is the same Greek word, but they have slightly different nuances. 
First, I want to look at what it means when it says that Jesus Christ has already laid hold of. So it means to seize, to take possession of Christ by his holy power and influence, laying hold of the human mind and will in order to prompt and govern it. Who has been laid hold of by Jesus Christ? If you know Christ as your Savior, you have been laid hold of by Jesus Christ. He's already done it. Christ did the work first. He first laid hold of Paul. He had already saved Paul, taking possession of him as his own. Christ had already given Paul a new heart, a new mind, a new will. This took place at salvation. Christ had taken possession of Paul as his own child, as a sheep to a shepherd. According to Romans 8, what is the goal for the believers? You remember what we read. It is to be conformed to the image of Christ. So Christ had taken possession of Paul to conform him into his own image, to make him Christ-like. Are you catching the connections there? So now let's look at when it says that Paul is striving to lay hold. So that means to obtain, to make something one's own, to attain to the prize of victory. So Paul is reaching toward this prize, this victory. So what was Paul pressing towards? He was seeking to lay hold of what Christ had already done. He was pressing on for Christ's likeness as well. So maybe MacArthur's explanation will help a little bit in case you're feeling a little confused here. So he says this, Paul was running spiritually to catch the very thing for which Christ Jesus had come after him. In other words, Paul's goal in life was consistent with Christ's goal in saving him. God chose Paul as he did all believers to make him like Jesus Christ. That purpose for which God saved us is also the purpose for which we live. The Christian life is a lifelong pursuit of Christ-likeness. That was the Lord's goal in saving Paul and was his goal and was Paul's goal in response. So number one, Paul's goal was Christ-likeness. So essentially what we have here is what Christ has already done is to make us like Jesus Christ. And so in response to that, our goal then needs to be to be like Christ. As we press on for the goal, striving to be like Christ, the world is watching. And God may use our testimony in ways we could never imagine. And I'm going to relate to you another story here. For 17 years, you guys may have heard of this uh, missionary family from the Philippines years ago. For 17 years, Gracia and Martin Burnham served as missionaries in the Philippines where Martin was a jungle pilot delivering mail and supplies and encouragement to other missionaries and transporting sick and injured patients to medical facilities. Gracia served in various roles supporting the aviation program and also homeschooling their children. On May 27, 2001, while celebrating their 18th wedding anniversary, the Burnhams were taken captive by a militant group of Muslims called the Abu Sayyaf Group. For more than a year and under the total control of their captors, they were constantly on the move, living in primitive conditions in the jungle, evading captive, ca excuse me, capture from the Philippine military, enduring gun battles, and witnessing unspeakable atrocities committed by the men of the Abu Sayyaf Group. On the afternoon of June 7, 2002, over a year after their abduction, the Philippine military attempted another rescue. Tragically, Martin was killed during that gunfight. Wounded but alive, Gracia was rescued and returned home under a national spotlight. So during the length of their capture, the Burnhams sought to live before the Abu Sayyaf in a manner worthy of the gospel, endeavoring to love their enemies. If you get the chance and you want to just go do a search for and listen to a testimony by Gracia, 
I think you will find yourself very encouraged. She has a very powerful testimony in just her own failings, her own sinfulness, and, and how the Lord really conformed her heart through that very difficult experience that she would be more and more Christ-like. So they had often, the Burnhams, as they were in this situation, they had conversations with their captors, imploring them to give their lives to Christ. At the time, their efforts were met with scorn and rejection, as of course you would imagine. However, in a recent interview, and I was just listening to this, I don't know, like a month ago or something, Gracia shared that five of their captors have come to Christ for salvation. During that horrific year in the jungle, they tried to reflect the character of Christ in the face of over evil and hatred, and God in his mercy used their testimony, though flawed and imperfect, to redeem their militant Muslim captors. And Gracia will tell you, she, she will say, Martin was the one that lived it well. I was the one that failed and struggled and wrestled of sin all the time. And yet, here she is, 20 years later, realizing that even in her failures, God has used that to redeem five of these men. And before the Lord has done it, could be even more, we don't know. But that is so significant. Our Christ-likeness matters. I'm not just telling you to be Christ-like just because it's something that we do casually. This is life and death. It is important. So I want to bring it home because we can oftentimes kind of separate something big and significant like being in a Japanese prison camp or being in the jungle as a missionary. And we can kind of separate ourselves from that because, eh, you know, our lives aren't that difficult. We're not heroes like they are. Most of us will never have the privilege of reflecting the character of Christ in a Japanese prison camp, nor will we spend a year running through the jungle as hostages to Islamist extremists. So we might ask, why must I press on then? Is it really that significant? You know, I have bad days. I have bad weeks. Does it really matter all that much? I'm here to tell you it matters all that much because it's those little things, those little decisions, those little priorities that determine whether or not we are Christ-like. We press on because Christ, our Savior, has taken hold of us. This is all the gospel. This is just beautiful. And do we not always go back to the gospel? It is the reason we live. It is the reason we look to the future. It is the reason we deny ourselves, why we surrender our will. All because of what Christ has done for us. He has saved us. He has redeemed us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his wonderful light. Our response to him should be total surrender to his will, just as he surrendered to the will of the Father. True Christ-likeness is relinquishing my will for the will of God because that is the example that Christ set. By surrendering his will to the Father, he made a way for our redemption. If Christ Jesus would not have surrendered to the Father, where would we be? we would not have salvation. And in response to what he has done as we love our Savior, then we strive to lay hold of that with which he has already laid hold of us. Paul understood that and set out to live his life striving for the very thing Christ had gone to the cross for on his account. And Paul said this in Acts 20, 24, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul did not count his life as dear to himself. And this is where we all come undone because we count our lives as dear to ourselves. And when we do that, we are far from being Christ-like. 
Paul's life had one purpose, and that was total obedience to his Savior, which required surrendering his will to the Father. The reason the Clingdons and the Burnhams' testimony made an impact on their captors was because they surrendered their wills to God. They were kind in the face of provocation. They were unselfish even at the expense of their own lives. They learned to love their enemies in a thousand small ways for the sake of Jesus Christ. And the reason why I love Gracia's testimony is because she makes it real. Because like I said, we separate it and we're like, yeah, but she's a missionary, you know. They're just up there. No, she made it real. I struggled. I was angry. I had no energy to run anymore. And I demanded of God that he give me a break. And as time passed, she said, I learned to pray differently. She said, I used to pray. Give me water. Give me water. I can't take another step, Lord, without water. Give me water now. And you know what? The Lord changed her heart to where she began to say, Lord, give me patience to wait for the water. What a life transformation. Give me patience because you can and I need to surrender my will to your will. So what is the result of our surrender to the will of Christ our Savior? God uses our lives to affect others. Just look around. Your life is affecting others around you. Your children, your grandchildren, your spouse, your coworkers, your siblings, your friends, your life is affecting people around you. So number two, our Christ-likeness influences others. So what does it mean for us to press on? What does it mean for us to run swiftly to reach the goal of Christ-likeness in our, maybe we might describe it as a mundane, ordinary life? It means we surrender our will, our plans, our preferences, our comfort, our prestige, and our rights, the rights. That's what I have a hard time with. It's not right. I deserve this. You shouldn't do that. We all struggle with our rights, our perceived rights. We think we have rights. We don't. And we have to surrender those things to the will of God by striving to obey his word at the cost of everything we want for ourselves. Did you hear that? We surrender everything for the will of the Father. So here's just a little few examples to kind of maybe make it a little bit more personal. Instead of grumbling and complaining when the car breaks, when the mechanic misdiagnoses the issue and it costs twice as much to fix it, when we receive an unexpected medical bill, we can all relate to this one, or when the price of food and gas doubles, what is, our, what is our natural human response? Grumble and complain? That guy, he's just making everything go crazy? He's ruining my world. Is that Christ-likeness? Bring it home, girls. Bring it home. Those little things all day long, those little thoughts, those little words, they determine our Christ-likeness. Instead of grumbling and complaining, we choose to thank God for his provision, for his goodness, for his kindness in salvation. If you have nothing else to look toward to keep a Christ-like attitude, you put your eyes, fix them on your Savior Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith. You fix your eyes on the gospel because he has given you the very best thing through salvation that you will ever, ever receive. Instead of being discontent when you are fighting chronic illness, when you are caring for aging in-laws, when you are physically drained from sleepless nights and busy toddlers, when you are weary of where you are in life with a difficult job, difficult children, difficult marriage, difficult in-laws, difficult neighbors, life can be difficult. Instead of feeding your discontentment by feeling sorry for yourself or believing your life should be different than what it is, 
You thank God for his many blessings. You thank him for opportunities to love, to serve, to pray. And you praise him for his goodness, protection, sovereignty, salvation, so many things. Because what is the problem? Why are we not like Christ? Because we have lost sight of Christ. Instead of being selfish by expecting or demanding time for yourself, by being offended when others don't acknowledge or appreciate your sacrifices, by punishing, yes, okay, we're all girls here, so I'm going to go here, by punishing your husband by withholding intimacy from him until he meets your needs, cleans the house, helps with the kids. We're not beyond that. Selfishness, not like Christ. By choosing your preferences, comfort, needs, and desires above others. Instead of being selfish, you thank God that he has provided salvation through Jesus Christ so that you can practice selflessness instead. You ask him to help you choose to joyfully deny yourself so that you will reflect the character of Jesus Christ. So how do we press on then? What is it that enables us to press on? We must have something that outweighs our desire to be sinful. Something more important, more significant, more valuable than pleasing ourselves and getting our own way. And what is that one thing? To be like Jesus Christ. That he would be honored and glorified in our lives. But in order to continue in Christ-likeness, we need to, on your outline, see, retain a proper perspective. So Paul goes on to say, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. So again, Paul repeats his acknowledgement that he has not yet attained perfection. He has not yet achieved perfect Christ-likeness. And in light of that, he makes this important statement. He says, one thing I do. So he has, number one on your outline, a single-minded focus. He has narrowed his life goal, pursuit, practice, effort, and passion to one thing. This is what guides and directs everything else he does. It is the underlying motive for his life. What is that one thing? What is he seeking to lay a hold of? What is he pressing toward? Christ-likeness. To be conformed to the image of his Savior. So to accomplish this, he must forget what is in the past while simultaneously reaching forward to what lies ahead. So another commentator said this, to forget in the Bible means no longer to be influenced by or affected. It simply means that we break the power of the past by living for the future. There were things in Paul's past that could have been weights to hold him back, but they became inspirations to speed him instead. The events did not change, but his understanding of them did. If you are wrestling with various things in your life, it may not be your circumstance that needs to change. It may need to be that your understanding of those circumstances change. And as, you, as your understanding changes, you will then properly interpret what is going on. So then you are able to respond how? In Christ-likeness. So as he is reaching forward, he does not let the past, good or bad, keep him from reaching for the goal of conformity to the character of Jesus Christ. He is not hampered by his sinful life of persecuting the Christians before he met Christ on the Damascus Road, nor is he overinflated by past credentials in keeping with the law. This is important for us to keep in mind. We ought not to look back at some mountaintop experience of Christ-likeness or Christian service from something in the past resting in that as evidence for our spiritual maturity. We must evaluate who we are today, 
Who am I in this moment? Am I reflecting Christ-likeness to others in this moment? What about that word I just said to my husband? What about that thought I just had because they've changed some things at church that I just really don't like? All kinds of little things. Remember, a thousand things, little things, determine our Christ-likeness. Those little selfish motives. We live for self all the time apart from the power of Christ. We need his strength, and we need to keep our eyes fixed on that one thing. Paul constantly kept a right perspective of his need for Christ-likeness and kept seeking it with all his effort. So number two, reaching forward. The Greek word for reaching forward means to stretch. It describes stretching a muscle to its limit and pictures a runner straining every muscle to reach the finish line. So no athlete runs the race looking behind him. If you have ever participated in any sort of running races or anything, track at all, you will know that you are never allowed to look behind you because it slows you down. As a teenager, my coach would tell us to lean forward as we approach the end of the race. Remember, you're leaning like this so that you get your chest out there to get there first. Throw your chest forward. Reach for that finish line. There was no room for turning around to look at the other runners to see how far they were behind you or how close they were. If you would have looked back, you would have lost the race. Even, do you remember running a relay race? Even as you were running a relay race, we had to figure out to have that perfect handoff, never turning around. We always were looking straight, and when they would slap that thing in our hand, we'd start running. Never looking back. And that's what Paul is saying here. Never looking back. I'm striving. I'm pressing on. So what is it that lies ahead? Perfect Christ-likeness in the presence of God. That was Paul's one thing, his goal. It was what he was pressing on toward. That goal determined how he viewed everything else in life. He viewed everything in life from the perspective of achieving that eternal goal. He did not interpret his present situation based on what had happened in the past, and he didn't interpret his future based on his present or his past. This is really key that you understand this. Because essentially what Paul is doing is he is looking at the future and the future is interpreting his present and his past. See, we have the tendency to look at our present circumstances and from that vantage point, we then interpret the future. That's entirely the wrong perspective. Instead, we look to our hope in eternity with Jesus Christ and that interprets how I understand today and how I live today. Because of Paul's proper perspective, he was enabled to continue to preach and teach and minister to the churches despite the most severe persecution and difficulties. He did not allow his circumstances to determine his zeal, his perseverance, or his purpose. This must likewise be true for us. We must learn to interpret our circumstances based on our pursuit of Christ-likeness. Do we view everything that comes into our lives as an opportunity to become more like Christ, to be perfected in the character of Jesus Christ? So D, Paul reaches for the prize. We need to reach for the prize. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So MacArthur wrote in his commentary that this verse is the heart of the passage. Paul is running swiftly, not looking behind, focusing on one thing, the goal, to receive the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And this should be the motto of our lives as well. But we struggle to press on. We forget what our goal is. We are distracted from pursuing the prize. We fail to be Christ-like. And this is precisely why we have a women's ministry. Because we wrestle, we struggle. 
Our desire is to equip you through Bible studies, prayer, and fellowship to press on, to remind you of your goal, to encourage you to pursue the prize and to help you become more Christ-like. And you know what? This is, I mean, I say that we're striving to help you do that, but you do understand that it has to happen here first in this heart before it can overflow to you. And studying the word is the thing that I constantly am looking at and I see my own reflection and the need to grow in my own life. So two important aspects of this race that we must keep in mind. We must put forth full effort on our part. We cannot be lazy, distracted, or complacent. Remember, Paul is striving. But we also do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not a race for the unbeliever or the believer who thinks they can achieve the prize in their own strength. As we run, God strengthens us through the infinite power of his Spirit. The goal is that he would be Christ-like, and the prize is when perfect Christ-likeness is attained. And when will that be attained? In glory. Both the goal, okay, so hear me, both the goal and the prize are the same thing. The attaining of the prize will be the upward call of God when he calls us to heaven. Toward that, Paul looked, and so must we. So right on top of each other here, one and then two. The goal is striving for Christ-likeness, and the prize is attaining Christ-likeness. So how do we win the race? By focusing on one thing and pressing forward toward that thing, not looking behind, but always focusing our gaze on Jesus Christ. Regardless of our circumstances, like the Apostle Paul and the Clingdons and the Burnhams, our goal should be to reflect the heart of Christ in a thousand little things. In our words, our thoughts, our attitudes, our desires, our priorities, and so many more things. And we have the wonderful, beautiful opportunity to link arms together as women here at GCC to press on together toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As we walk together, encouraging each other, loving each other, and serving each other, we will be strengthened to persevere until the day we are called home.